Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 16. Final Refuge. Hello, Woody, XR leader Airborne. Three other Spitfires and I are well out over the silver and blue sea, climbing steeply into the sun. Hello, Woody. Dennis here. Any trade for us? Will it be the Italians this time? 
If they don't fire at us, there may be a chance of forcing one to land, of capturing an Italian to find out what he really thinks. Immense possibilities. The whole war might be shortened. 15,000 feet, but still no reply from Woody. Hello, Woody. Hello, Woody. Dennis here. Any trade? I ask anxiously, banging my wireless case and repeating the message. At last. Yes, Dennis. 40 plus, 20 miles out. Big jobs and little jobs. Approaching from the east. Sounds like Huns. Sounds as if escort is higher than the bombers. Only four of us. We'll climb up on top, dive vertically past escort, then onto bombers. I look out at the wings of my Spitfire, for they are covered with huge white spots. Following up my ideas on air combat, I wanted to be quickly recognised so that my companions can reform to deliver a second attack on any bombers we meet. I've also had my Perspex hood removed. Chiefy disapproved of the spots, but the airmen have made a splendid job of covering the whole of my aircraft. He says all the enemy fighters will fasten upon me. Perhaps I'm stupid, but it's worth a try. Hello, Woody. Where are the bombers now? No reply. No reply to my repeated question. Blast it. Either his wireless is faulty or mine is. From high in the sun over the southeasterly corner of the island, there's no sign of the enemy. Without my perspex hood, I have a particularly clear view of the coastline, serrated by narrow bites of sea, 25,000 feet below. In Calafrana Bay, the largest bay, down there I can see the Breckenshire, the overturned ammunition ship from the last convoy, widely encircled by promontories of brown earth. She looks like a long red nail with a plume of rust curling away from her in the blue water. Over there, a sudden bomb burst in Halfar. Woody's voice blares in my earphones. The bombers are going out west, low over the water. Get them, chaps. I swing violently downwards over the southernmost lump of the island, but the vital information has come through too damned late. We're dropping almost vertically at full throttle. Red-dusted Halfar is swallowed under my Spitfire's nose, and now, bouncing jerkily with my controls, almost solid with pressure, the cliffs and the sea are racing up to meet my windscreen. An 88, low on the water, could easily misjudge our pullout and plunge straight into the sea. Careful, then. As the 88 leaps towards us, I glimpse back into the glaring sun. We're in perfect position to attack. That silver, brilliantly shining sun? Something there? Screwing up my eyes, searching the blinding light. Blurs of grey, incongruous lumps of black. Then, quite clearly for an instant, straight black wings. 109's behind, exiles. I frame the words calmly and quietly. Break right. If I spoke carefully, I'm now heaving up my controls with all my strength. Sudden island detail close in front of my nose, then sky as I climb. The 109 scatter like spray. Twisting in my seat, my companions can't have heard my order. I'm alone. Enemy fighters everywhere. Two race low overhead, four more on my right. As three more 109s dive head on under my nose, I watch the fourth turning towards me. In a few seconds, he will pass below to my left. There's plenty of time to shoot him down. This should be easy. Controls a little to the left, give him more deflection than that, a little more to the left, that's fine. He's flying beautifully now, straight towards the red centre spot of my gun sight. I can feel the hump of the firing button beneath my thumb. Wait a little longer. Clatter, 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 machine guns. Bomb, 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 bomb. My cannons making their slower beat as I adjust my fingers. He's sweeping closer and closer, larger and larger. Flashes on his wings and fuselage. Gigantic in size, he disappears under my wing. I heave my spitfire into a steep turn. On his tail now. Where is he? Where's he got to? With my Spitfire on a violently nose-down attitude, I'm leaning forward in my straps, peering through my windscreen. On the left, the tall, narrow rock formation called Filfla stands alone and sunlit, its flat top yellow with grass, some narrow ledges on its vertical sides and white surf breaking round the foot of it. The sea is deep blue and my 109 was black. It's obviously there, somewhere in front of me, damned if I can see it. A sudden call in my earphones. Something's gone in near Filfla. It must be my 109 that has crashed. The splash must be right underneath me. As I stare downwards, I hear a quiet voice. Turn right. 
The voice is not in my earphones. It is louder, firmer. Turn right. Turn right! A roared command. My hands and feet jump to obey. My spitfire pitches sideways against the pressure. I look back over my shoulder, an exploding cannon shell, just where I was. Two, three, four, five more in a straight line across the blue. More 109s on my right. More above them. I'm cut off from the island. 109s coming down. Tracers. At last I've got away from them. The cliff tops flash below me. God knows how long I've been twisting and turning. May have got two more. Couldn't follow them down. Practically out of ammo. Twisting and turning over Safi Valley. I watched two 109s black against the yellow fields. Now against the flat patch of Halfar Aerodrome. Flash behind the Takali Hills. Two Spitfires are after them. But four more 109s. Up sun after the spits. A yellow warning. Over there, a 109 by himself. I'll get him. Search the sky. Search the sky. It's all clear as I climb nearer and nearer. Yes, I'll get this fellow. It's a trap. Five more 109s in the sun. Coming down, I crouch lower in the cockpit as I dive headlong behind a hilltop, hoping not to be noticed. Wingtip close to the walls, round the hill, out over open country. Thank God, sky clear, but keep twisting and turning, twisting and turning. I can hardly believe it, but the sky really is empty, safe for a moment. The empty sky is a wonderful royal blue. Clatter, 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 clatter. Over on a wingtip, I can't see him. Oh God, I can't see him. Keep turning hard. Clatter, 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 clatter. It's our army gunners firing from the ground. You bloody fools. Unlike the hurricane that was shot down, I managed to sweep clear of the army gunners and I landed soon after. I apologised to Chiefy for all the extra trouble I'd caused him and got him to paint out the spots at once. He smiled back at me with such a patient, kindly understanding smile. I'm still shaken after that trip. When I was fighting the 109s over the sea, it seemed like hours. I'm back at Naxar now. It's difficult to believe that only yesterday, with the war dismissed from my mind, I was sitting peacefully on the steps of the harbour painting boats. Oh, how desperately I need some real friend to talk to. But Peter's dead. Could I talk to Chiefy? A deep tie of friendship seems to have sprung up from our exchanges at the dispersal point. He seems to respect me in a strange way, although I'm continually making an ass of myself. I need his almost fatherly affection, for I have little else. I dare not risk it by revealing my inner real thoughts. I can't talk to the CO either. I was reminded of that this afternoon when he came to take over the squadron. What the devil have you done to that spitfire, he asked. I looked at the Spitfire. I could see nothing wrong with it. After the fight, all the spots had been meticulously painted out. There wasn't a trace of where they had been. I looked at the CO in bewilderment. You! He bit off his words, for I'm his senior flight commander, and there were airmen present. I could see nothing wrong with the damned aeroplane, but the CO turned to Chiefy, and I overheard his expressionless order. Have the Perspex hood put back at once. So that was the trouble. Flying without a hood. I considered that a first-rate idea. I still do. With the 109s in the sun, my quick vision may have saved all our lives this morning. I walked away from the dispersal point, past G-Shelter towards the mess. The CO was damned lucky that I brought his Spitfire back at all. Neither can I talk to the doc. Drinking in the mess, he was holding forth in declamatory terms about us pilots. The index of anxiety neurosis amongst pilots is getting phenomenally high on the island, he said. The trouble is that there are too many of them and not enough aeroplanes. None of you, he continued, looking in my direction, get enough flying. You're all yellow, he added with an obvious sneer in his voice. His attitude may, of course, have been some kind of psychological treatment for us, but you never know with docs. Perhaps I could talk to a padre, but no padre has been anywhere near us since we arrived. I could talk to Diana if she were here, but she's not. I've poured out my feelings in letters to her, but I have no reply. While I was in the mess, I searched again through all the mailboxes just in case my first letter had arrived and got muddled up with somebody else's mail, but it wasn't there. Down at the mess, I did have a chat with old Greg, the catering officer. Not a real chat. Nothing but the surface glitter, the same old stuff as if to say, are we downhearted? No. 
I must have been quite funny, for I had him doubled up with laughter. The same old shell that the world calls putting a happy face on things. But who the hell knows what's going on underneath the shells with which we face one another. Greg told me there was a ration lorry going down to the supply dump at Marsa, so I hitchhiked for the ride. We were approaching Grand Harbour when the sirens went off. I hate that bloody noise when I'm down here, said the airman driver, his horrified eyes protruding from his round face. Although we both laughed at each other's expressions, I didn't like the sound of it either, particularly as the streets were new to me. In the street next to the supply dump, the ground floor windows of the gutted houses were boarded up. Blue sky stared through the fractured upstairs windows, while twisted wrought iron balconies hung down from the stonework. Furthermore, the street was packed with herds of goats. With a cry of delight at such a subject for drawing, I leapt down from the lorry and pulled out my sketchbook. Oh, the sheer joy of drawing. The people pushing their way through the herds didn't stay long. At the first sound of enemy engines, the men rushed down the street, kicking the goats out of the way, while the women, snatching up their children, waddled after them. I watched the irregular white pattern of shellbirds suspended against the blue, with the 88s diving steeply towards us. The goats stayed, so I stayed. During the bombing, the goats surged restlessly, poor helpless creatures, standing with them in the straw and dung of the street, with fleas gathering in my khaki socks. Everything seemed unimportant compared with the drawing of the goats. If I get killed, I said to myself, it'll happen while I'm doing my proper job as an artist. My head rang with explosions, but nothing came dangerously near. Finally, the red drizzle of bomb dust drifted away. The noise of aircraft faded into the distance. The people started coming back. The first was a woman with a very thick body, her full breasts hanging down inside her crumpled dress as far as her apron, where a frayed length of string was tied round the middle of her. Good afternoon, I said, smiling as she passed. She looked at me, scowled and grunted. She had the face of a brute with thick protruding lips, wild eyes and coarse hair. She was an animal of a different species, and although she wore clothes, she looked as if she too might leave her droppings behind her in the road. I came to the conclusion that I liked goats best. The lorry had been loaded all too quickly, so reluctantly I climbed aboard. The all-clear sounded as we whirled through the streets of Hamram, and by the time we reached Berkikara, our route was crowded with people. Sitting next to the airman driver with my round blue Air Force hat on the back of my head, I smiled to myself as I watched hundreds of people forced slowly back each side of us like the prow wave of a ship. Happy people with their heads thrust forward gobbling at each other, just like my friend the goats. As I stepped down from the lorry here at Naxar, I decided that a crowd of people would be my next subject. So, here I am in my bedroom, smiling down at Diana's photograph. It's been wonderful drawing once again, for standing with the goats, all my troubles seemed to slide away. Now, however, Naxar Palace thrusts me back into the old dilemma. Fight and sleep. Fight and sleep. We have, for example, no administration of any kind, and therefore there's no adjutant here to chat to. There's no squadron intelligence officer who would normally be another friendly fellow to have about. The confusion of my thoughts mills round and round in my head. I need some friends to tell me I'm not going mad, someone even to tell me I'm doing my job well as a fighter pilot. I can't help thinking how different it would have been in England tonight. The squadron IO would have been excited with quiet efficiency. Take that first 109, for instance. Well, old boy, did you observe strikes? He would have asked. Yes and no, I would have replied. I saw something, maybe strikes. Might have been sunlight glinting on him. It was also quick, practically head on with no time at all after I started firing. He was so huge, I don't see how I could have missed him. Well, is there anything else that would support your claim? Yes, he went steeply under my left wing and disappeared. A few seconds afterwards, someone called up on the RT and said, something's gone in near Filfler. Whoever it was didn't claim it or he wouldn't have called out. Something went in and so far as I know, I was the only spitfire of a Filfler at the time. Well, old boy, I.O. would have said, I'll hunt up your somebody who saw it and we'll see what we can do for you. He'd probably have seen me later and said, got that 109 for you. Or perhaps, bad luck, old boy, no go, we can't get confirmation. 
I don't think I would have minded so much about the lack of recognition, for he would have tried. But not here in Malta. Oh no, we are Malta pilots. We have no squadron adjutant, no squadron IO, no special dock, no engineering officer, and none of the other closely associated types who help to make the wheels go round and who contribute much more than I ever believed possible to the spirit of normal Air Force life. We are alone. But I must stop this. I must snap myself out of this despondency. Even if I am tired out, riddled by the dog and shaken by this morning's trip, we are all in a bad way, and this battle has got to be endured. It has got to be endured. I will take the very strength of my own solitude, and, until I am killed, I will paint and I will draw. I will draw, draw, draw. But please, God, let one other thing happen soon. Let there be a letter from my wife. I can be oblivious of the battle while I'm drawing, but I cannot forget my wife. I've been drawing desperately while the battle has continued and changed its shape. Last Friday night, after drawing the goats, there were unusual engines in the night sky. And not only enemy planes, ten Wellingtons arrived from Egypt, the first batch of our new bomber force, for Hugh Pugh considers that our Spitfires have reached daylight supremacy. As they landed on the flare path during the bombing that was going on, two of them crashed into newly formed craters. I don't think Hugh Pugh would approve of my enthusiasm for the wreckage of his two valuable planes, but the reawakened artist in me was delighted when I arrived here at Looker for readiness yesterday morning. For a long time I was on readiness, leading the Spitfires, but at three o'clock in the afternoon, when the CO took over from me, I sped across the aerodrome with my sketchbook. I was only just in time for two men had started to dismantle the tailplane of the first bomber. The fuselage of the wreck with its tall rudder lay among the flat surface of the aerodrome, but from the centre of its body, where the fabric-covered geodetic construction had ruptured, the front half of the plane plunged steeply into the crater. The whole hundred-foot span of its wings clasped the rocks in a gesture of pathetic helplessness. The steel propellers were curled up like springs. The wireless aerial, which had twanged apart, hung down like a single strand of curly hair. And where the front gun turret had broken off, a black mouth gaped at me. I felt the sorrow of our wind-whispered bomber lying so still and helpless under the glaring sun. It seems to me that the more closely wrecked planes resemble slugs and insects and other humble animate creatures, the more dearly do I feel for them. It was like that with the second bomber, which I drew later, just before dusk. As I was drawing, I heard the sound of heavy engines, although no warning had been given. The sky was suddenly filled with more strange aircraft. I was astonished. Formations of RAF Bristol Blenheims, bow fighters, and torpedo-carrying Beauforts flew in from the sea. They circled majestically above our aerodrome, and then, one after another, they rumbled in for their long landings. It was the second wave of our new bomber force. A fantastic sight. For the first time, I have seen our own bombers flying here in broad daylight. In an unreasonable way, I resented their intrusion into our private battle with the Hun. Perversity of human nature, for today I feel very motherly and protective about these bombers, dispersed into the fields and valleys round the aerodrome. I am on readiness, watching for the takeoff signal, for surely the Germans will make another attempt to wipe them out. I have been drawing and painting this morning. I have been painting one of the monuments to the last bomber force we had here, one of the wreck pits on the side of the haunted valley of Safi, a stupendous subject, although my painting was a failure. A deep pit cut into the golden rock and filled to overflowing with the blue-black wreckage of Wellingtons, Marylands, Swordfish, Hudsons and many other aircraft, all rustling together quietly like dried bones. (laughs) 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. I wonder how long our new bomber force will last. There was a raid while I was working, bombs on the other side of the aerodrome, although I timidly crouched behind a rock, for it's usually Safi that gets it. I watched a 109 shot down about a mile away, but very much closer, just a few hundred yards along the perimeter track, an Italian Mach 202 plunged into the ground at fantastic speed. A huge bubble of fire shot back into the sky. The pilot bailed out. For a moment I thought we were going to capture him, for his chute was creamy yellow against the blue sky for an instant before it burst. He was spattered all over the grass. We'll never know what that poor Italian thought about the war. Since taking over readiness from the CO and awaiting my turn to fly, I've been drawing the airmen here. I've been talking to them, and they're a magnificent lot. Some have faced the strain of being here three or four years, in some cases six or seven years abroad. Their reliefs are long overdue, but because of the siege they cannot be replaced. Most have faced every kind of disaster, yet they smile and they laugh. They make me feel ashamed. Eight out of the ten married men here on the dispersal point tell me that their homes are breaking up, most of them broken up already. Their wives are carrying on with other men, mostly foreign troops stationed in England. To my offer of help, they replied with sad resignation, It's no good now, sir. It's no good anymore. These airmen accept their smashed marriages as the inevitable refuse of separation and war. I envy their quality of endurance in this battle, but must a man lose everything so that no other disaster can befall him? Must we lose everything we love and everything that promises fair in life? I am 22 years old. I have spent a few short weeks with my young wife. Is this then our future? A car is speeding across the aerodrome towards us. As it draws up, Group Captain Woodhall, our senior controller, ducks out of the door. Woody is visiting us. With a smile, I leave my Spitfire to meet this small, wiry, middle-aged man wearing shorts that are much too big for him. His khaki shirt bears an impressive array of rank, while below his wings, two full rows of medals testify to his wide experience. 
The sunlight catches his bleached moustache and from under the gold-encrusted peak to his hat, his merry eyes twinkle up into mine. Hello, sir. Hello, Dennis, he replies. As we shake hands, he holds the whole of my extended forearm, squeezing it gently. Anxious to get up into the air, he asks. Yes, sir, I reply, for Woody has an infectious enthusiasm for the battle. But why were we held so much on the ground? Woody looks like a sparrow holding his head on one side, staring down at the dusty ground as he listens to my question. At the moment, he replies, the Hun is only putting his little toe into our sky and we don't need many of you boys to tweak it. When he puts his head in again, we'll send you all up to punch his nose. Now, will you get all the boys around? He asks restlessly. As Cyril, Pancho, Babyface and several of the new boys come running towards us, I feel that Woody's visit is more than just a friendly one. He has, I think, a very deliberate reason for visiting us today. I can hear my heart thumping with apprehension as I wait for his news. What the devil are they going to do to us now? Well... We've made a decision about you fellows, Woody begins. What decision, I ask myself with anxiety, for a lot of changes seem to be taking place. You all know, he continues, smiling mischievously, that the normal overseas tour of duty is two or three years, and that's what you all expected when you arrived here. The intensity of the Malta fighting is now officially recognised. It's been decided to give you all a rest in three months' time. You're not going to be sent to the Middle East, you'll be sent to England. You've all done a fine job and we'd give you a rest right now if we could, but, of course, you realise that since we're besieged here, the manner of your replacement will depend on seats in the available transit planes. We are, however, going to start sending pilots home straight away. Pilots who have been here six months already will be leaving tonight, or as soon as we can arrange seats. After that, three months will be considered as a full mortar tour for fighter pilots. What about the ground crews, sir? They'll be going on the next convoy. I am astonished at Woody's news. My heart beats hard and strong with joy. Joy for all the pilots here, especially the old hands who have flown and sweated and suffered much longer than we have. Joy tinged with sorrow for all those who will never return. Sorrow for all those who will never welcome them home. But predominantly joy at this sudden hope of survival. I immediately think of Diana, how surprised she will be when I walk in the front door. Three months, Woody said. I immediately start working how long I've been here already and how much longer I will have to stay to do this wonderful thing. I've been here five weeks. Only five weeks. It seems impossible, for they feel like a lifetime. I've only passed through one third of my duty period. I have two whole months more. I've got to stay alive. But what chance have I got? I'll never do it. I'll never see Diane again. Never, never again. Good news, isn't it, Dennis? I'm aware that Woody is looking up at me. Yes, sir. Jolly good. I reply with an attempt at a smile as we walk towards the car. You'll be pleased to get back to your wife, he asks. As I hold open the car door, I realise that it would indeed be wonderful, but there's no chance. I'm surprised, however, that Woody even knew I had a wife. Woody pauses and, fumbling in his pocket, looks up smiling. By the way, Dennis, there's a letter come for you. The letter is not from Diana. At Naxar, I cannot still the anxiety of my heart. I don't know whether it's because I'm a bit shaken from bomb blast that bowled me over in the sharp raid we had after Woody left, or whether it's what the airmen have been telling me of their smashed marriages, but I'm on fire with jealous anxiety for my wife. As the airmen described their homes to me, I imagined their wives, perhaps tired, perhaps bored. I imagined men taking their wives out, and from what the airmen tell me, indeed from my own observation of adult life in war, a man taking out a married woman always leads to one thing in the end. Although I try to tell myself that I'm stupid to feel such anxiety, this letter I'm holding in my hand is from a man who has been taking Diana out, describing what they've been doing together. It was posted in England last week. Where, then, are Diana's letters to me? 
I suddenly respond to the chat of the pilots in the bar. Woody's and Hugh Pugh's scheme for sending pilots home to England is indeed starting tonight. With mixed feelings, I learn that two of our pilots are leaving in a few hours' time. One is Scotty. Seeking him out to congratulate him on this splendid news, I give him Diana's address and beg him to get in touch with her for me. Scotty, although he flew in with us from the USS Wasp, is going home. After Max's death, Scotty has no doubt been living in an agony of solitude. What inward tortures he has been enduring, no one can tell. Nevertheless, there comes a time when a fighter pilot overruns the period of his maximum efficiency and starts to disintegrate through sheer exhaustion. If he is pushed beyond this point, he is usually shot down and killed. I am glad Scotty has survived, for he had always been one of the most gallant members of our team. The other man is a flight sergeant from B-Flight. He is being sent home in disgrace for cowardice. Despite it being unfashionable to sympathise with cowardice, I feel for him in a strange inner way. He must have suffered horribly because of his fear of flying, yet some day he must turn round to face it squarely or his life is ruined forever. May God go with them both. Laughter all around me. The CO gives me a great clout on the back. Ha ha, he says with a great laugh. I've had another letter from home while poor old Dennis here has had nothing. I have concrete evidence, he continues, sparring away from me as if he wanted to start a playful boxing match and lowering his voice into a mock growl that the lovely Diana has been unfaithful. Anxious though I am, I can draw and paint. I have settled comfortably on a huge rock thrown up by a recent explosion. I have opened my beer bottle filled with water and unfolded my paint box. I've started painting and I've discovered that I'm in a free, brave mood with everything coming right in my picture. I'm drawing confidently and rhythmically in broad, happy strokes. I am an artist, yes. I am an artist. Whatever madness and brutality the war throws in my face, I can paint, despite the continuous sharp-edged pains of the accursed Volta dog in my stomach. In fact, in spite of everything, I can live in ecstasy with the joy of rich and tender colour. I am painting with love and intense sorrow for the tragedy of these Valletta ruins, painting as I have never painted before. In shadow, just in front of me, rises a sweeping archway lined with Prussian blue tiles, chipped white by bomb splinters, Part of its curve has fallen away, making the arch bleed the pebbled detail of brown ochre rubble. Through it, I can see the remains of a palace, mountains of rectangular rocks piled in disorder into the sky, dazzling against the blue, pressing heavily on the honeycombs of collapsed cellars. To the right of the arch, beyond an open square, is an undamaged palace, beautifully proportioned with tall windows, weathered red in colour, a pale Venetian red of incredible subtlety. Its end is facing me, while the length of it extends back into space down a long street. The street reveals ruin after ruin, stretching away into the farthest distance. A man is seated on the curbstone a few yards away, leaning forward with his head bent over into his hands. He wears dark blue trousers, a pale waistcoat, and he sits there, just in front of me, exactly where I would have placed him. Only he, of course, can experience the full, vivid pathos of his city's destruction. But I seem to feel his emotion transmitted across the blown dust between us. One part of me feels with him, while a second part is obsessed with the technicalities of my trade. I am trying to keep this picture bold and simple in keeping with the scars of ruthlessness. I lift my paintbrush, dropping in tender variations of colour on the dazzling ruins. I have to be careful in suggesting these colours to keep the area both light and brilliant. A hand is placed on my shoulder. Where is your permission to paint? Looking up, I find three Maltese policemen staring down at me. I hesitate in bewilderment. I've been given permission by the group captain in charge of my aerodrome. You have it with you? asks the tall policeman. No, it was verbal permission. Then you'll have to come along with us. But surely, I ask, 
utterly unable to believe in what is happening. Can't I finish the picture first? The policeman stares with callous indifference at my work. No. But I've got to finish it, I reply. I know full well that I may get shot down and killed before I have another chance. I've got to finish it. I've got to... I manage to blurt out, or am I under arrest? Not under arrest, but we've got to make immediate inquiries. Trying to conceal my distress, I try to think, for I know these men have got to carry out their job. All right, I suggest. Here is my name and my aerodrome. If you ring the group captain, he will vouch for me. I won't go away. I'll stay here working on the picture and I'll come straight round to the police station as soon as I've finished. That's no good. The tall policeman gestures towards a nearby civilian at the front of the crowd that has gathered. This gentleman has reported your activities to us. You have to come at once. I look at the civilian concerned, for he's staring at the ground and rocking to and fro on his feet, suggestive of amusement. From under lifted eyebrows, his eyes look sharply into mine. He is laughing. The man is actually laughing. Laughing, he turns on his heel. Laughing, he walks away through the crowd. A wave of anger overwhelms me. I turn to the policeman in protest, but are you coming or do we have to take you? Surging with anger and swallowed up in bitterness, for have I not gone up into the sky and risked my life shooting down 88 so that bombs would not fall on these homes? I find it difficult to control myself, difficult to bend down and fold up my paint box. In my own small, innocent way, can't I be left alone to paint my sympathy for a world gone crazy? The great bell of madness clangs and clangs in my brain, clangs and clangs. The great bell grows monstrous about me, heaving and heavy, bearing me down, tears blurring my eyes as I am led away, pink blobs on either side of me, hostile, inquisitive faces as the crowd parts to let us through. I am now back at Naxar with my mind reeling. My sketchbooks have been ripped to pieces, so I fling my useless painting equipment onto my bed. Of all my paintings, I have only paper stubs left between the cardboard covers of my sketchbook. I have only a few pen sketches left in my diary and two watercolours left in the drawer to show for all my work on the island. I look at my wife's photograph for some kind of consolation. Please, God, let there be a letter from her. Tears still blur my eyes. I've got to control myself, got to pull myself together. Dennis, the CO, calls across to me. There's a cable for you down at Looker. The dreaded Hugh is bringing it with him when he comes off readiness. Hope. Hope at last. With bombs falling upon us, we take our places for the evening meal. The cable is undoubtedly from Diana, an answer to all the cables I have sent in recent weeks, begging for news. The minutes drag. At last, Hugh arrives, waving the orange envelope. I move forward to claim it, but the CO grabs it instead. He tosses it to Pancho, Pancho to Cyril, Cyril to John's. I am being baited, so I sit on my chair with my hands folded. This, then, is the moment. I am holding it firmly. I am ripping open the top of the envelope. The words dance and blur. Couldn't she even reply to me herself? No love here, a cold message, brief and factual. Signed abruptly with her father's surname. What the devil are you worrying about, man? Pull yourself together, is what they seem to say. It's not even from my wife, I blurt out as I rush from the room. Black despair flings me down on my bed. I listen to the friendly shriek of bombs. Let them come. Let the walls engulf me downwards, for I can stand no more. In vain I hear the moan of departing bombers, the faint stutter of more distant guns. Silence. I watch my face in the mirror, pebble eyes staring back at me. A reversed face I have known all my life. This is the end. My service revolver is heavy. Its metal is cold as I load the bullet. Such a small passport to oblivion. No hurry about it. Through the mouth or through the temple? That's it for today. 
we'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.